0: What do toe spacers do?
1: A lot of stuff. So I like toe spacers. Your fucking hobbit feet need some toe spacers. My feet are um, four foot is. Not as wide as it should be. It's just hairy, but toe spacers in general, they're going to spread the forefoot or splay the forefoot, keeping separation between all the different toes, the way that your foot was intended to move and try to open up a little bit of mobility through something that if we wear the traditional Nikes, Adidas whatever it may be, gets very constricted and very locked down or stable, not mobile. Like it should be.
0: Okay. I got a uh, I got a pair today actually, so I've been trying to wear them for like ten minutes a day or whatever while I do my meditation type shit. That's been uh, it feels good. That's like the number one and only reason I do it is because it feels and, good.
1: Yeah, I like. For people that are trying to work on this, because this is a training booster, I like there's a brand called Correct Toes. It's made by a podiatrist and a foot physical therapist. They, I think they comboed on it. They came to a presentation at my school when I was there, but they're my favorite um, toe spacer out there because it's really fits to your foot. Like you have the jelly ones or it's just like a, like a jelly ring that goes around your toe. Alex?
0: Uh, I don't know. I have the $10 pair off of Amazon.
1: Yeah. So these ones are a little bit more expensive, but they last longer and they don't bunch up on you. Like I know I've tried the jelly ones and they just roll up and they turn like skinny versus thick, like you want them to be, like correct toe. So it's got a big sixty-five
0: spacer. bucks for correct toe. Yep.
1: But they're worth it.
0: Maybe once I get a little more bought into the toe spacer thing and i make it a re- uh, reliable part of my self-care.
1: What you don't you don't like giving your feet some love, bro?
0: dude i bought the toe spacers i did the thing don't you don't kill my momentum i did i was doing that actually pretty uh pretty often i was like wow this feels good i should keep doing this and then i was like but this is inconvenient to do with my fingers every day so that's just why i went shower. to amazon
1: do it in the shower Two Stop minutes on telling each side. me
0: what to do in the shower that's a that's a me thing that sounds like awesome.
1: exclusively my job
0: your job is to shut the fuck up
1: no <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh no but health uh, is extremely important and it should not be taken lightly listeners at home well
0: and that's what i think too with uh especially in mma like you're you're performing your spare or foot No, my god you're performing your sport barefoot right so like we should give this foot a lot of love and it needs to be stable strong and uh and dynamic so I'm a big fan of even in the weight room, just training without shoes on.
1: Yep. I do it all. I mean, if, if you're listening and you've come into the clinic, I, I wear flip-flops all day so that I can take my shoes off and I can spread my toes. Like I, I take pride in being able to spread my forefoot and people calling me fucking weird because I can lift up my big toes separately from my four little toes. That's exactly what I was thinking. It's a you're a fucking weirdo. You take pride in being able to separate your toes. (laughs) But it's it's something that it's made a huge difference in how my body feels, like not just in my foot, all the way up the chain. Like being able to actually move my foot after years and years of being bound up in tight wrestling shoes. Yeah. And being able to spread my toes, it's been my knees feel way better. Like I've my history, I have a lot of knee problems. Like that's held me out a lot of my wrestling career it's made my knees feel better it's made my uh like my hips feel a little bit looser it's opened up mobility i never had just from working on spreading them toes Spread them toes yeah i don't know
0: i'm I'm in the beginning parts of my journey so we'll see how the toe spacers work out um related but not really related uh have you seen those hand extensor little bungee it's basically
1: the same thing. Yeah. I don't mind doing those. Yeah. um, What I like about it is typically we train flexion a whole bunch. Like most of our grip work is flexion, all that stuff (laughs) being able to extend. It's just a different movement that for people that are always here and for the people at home, closed fists, like you're punching, it just gives a little bit more movement to the back.
0: Right. And I mean, it gives a little bit of movement, but like what would ever spark your interest in doing that? Right. Like, Is it like hand pain? Is it like arm tightness? I don't know
1: why. Yep. My biggest thing for people when they ask me about those, like actually my dad asked me about those a little while back. And I told him, I'm like, well, if you're on the recreational side, if you're just working at a desk all day and then doing jujitsu at night, everything you're doing, if you're sitting at a desk typing, that's going to be inflection of your wrist. If you're going to jujitsu, it's a lot of gripping, typically with more of a Flex down wrist, not extended wrist, that's going to be flexors. So what it's going to do is just going to even out the distribution between. So whether it be wrist pain, you, I've also seen a lot of people that this has that lateral epicondylitis, which is on the outside of your elbow. You just have some pain and inflammation over there doing the extensor work and trying to work away from that super tight flexor based forearm is going to even out the muscles, even out the muscles, takes pressure off of those painful or tight sites.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Movement is medicine, if you will.
1: It's not necessarily the device, it's just the movement. You can do reverse wrist rolls with a five to eight pound dumbbell too. It's going to do relatively similar things. One would be finger flexors, the other would be wrist, or sorry, finger extensors, the other would be wrist extensors. But working through what would be the posterior, if you're standing anatomically, portion of your forearm, so the top of that forearm is going to help tremendously down the line with wrist health.
0: Sure, sure, sure.
1: Um, one other
0: odd exercise that I did today that I haven't seen, but one of my fellow coaches at land performance, uh, had prescribed to me was like a medicine ball roll-up. Have you ever done that
1: medicine? Oh, like a Jefferson curl,
0: kind of like a Jefferson curl, but you start with like a 20, 30 pound med ball at your toes and you literally just like roll it up your shins up to your thighs. And then you almost do like a segmentation to come up. Into an extension and he dropped the ball.
1: Yeah, I do something similar. We program the wave unload. Yeah, it's a sim- similar concept where you're trying to segment essentially, it's trying to get segmental flexion and extension all the way through everything, right? Yeah, yeah. No, those uh, to me feel so good, except for right now because I'm dealing with a disc herniation thing right now. I just get stabbing pain two to three times a day that I have to just jump into
0: pressing. Ah, for. so the master becomes the pupil,
1: huh? It happens so often, like I probably shouldn't say that a new patient visit, but I had a patient that had acute low back pain and I was teaching breathing. And I had one of my like stabbing, like ice pick episodes in my low back. And I had hands on, I was tactile cueing. And I'm like, Oh shit. And I'm like, all right, we're good now. Cause it's only like a two or three second thing. And he just looked at me. He's like, I'm like, yeah, you know, the thing that you came in with, I'm going through the same thing right now. Like we have the same homework.
0: What did you do? <laughs> I'm curious. Cause For me, you're you're the guy that's never got problems you're the guy that has solution
1: what do I do to fix it or what did I cause it with?
0: What did you cause it with?
1: I don't know it's probably I just started lifting a little bit heavier again as well as more frequent um and I also don't have time to warm up the way that I would like to warm up. <laughs> five minutes on cardio and then two or three correctives don't really cut it when you're trying to push your limits. So that probably causes it. And then I've just been sitting a lot. I've been working a lot, dude. Yeah. Work is the
0: killer of of everything.
1: Yeah. And if I'm working on people and I'm in my stool, like my little doctor's stool, that's always from around, like from a loaded lumbar flexion state.
0: Yeah. I mean, I see that all the time. Like and I mean, we, we know that volume is kind of the killer in your program or whatever, right? Like uh, volume is what causes a lot of adaptation and a lot of big stimulus, but any rapid increases in volume, like uh, one thing that's typical at Factory X is you have to do a tryout to get on the team, blah, blah, blah. And then like your last phase of the tryout is you have to make every session for three months, essentially, right? You have to be at every practice for three months and then you have to do like two supplemental classes a week um for most guys even if you have enough skill and you're like physically fit enough to make the team which is a hard challenge in itself like that's a big step up in volume right so almost every new guy we get on the team is like super overtrained and always has low back pain and so it's like it's like you just stepped up your volume way too much um and i feel like that's honestly a lot of the killer in programs and i mean you have to get to a certain level of volume at one point, like you have to be able to do your workload, like you need to progress into that. But I feel like there should be a, a more segmental approach rather than like, um, I guess, throwing it on you.
1: Yeah. Well, you see that a lot. A, a parallel is return to play protocols. You yeah. see that a lot where people are coming back from injury. And then you just go full full throttle after you leave a clinic, you felt like you were good. You were really only at 65, 70%. You just jump back into full participation without grading yourself back into your sport or into your skill practice, which in a recent podcast, we talked about where you, you need to be able to be given segmental challenges to get in and the coaches need to be okay giving segmental challenges for return to play athletes. But that's a very, very similar parallel between the two.
0: Yeah. Very true, very true. And I think I don't know, like low back pain seems to be like a I mean, obviously is a chronic site of um irritation whenever that like overload and volume, but it's 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 odd to me that it's more like what brings it on is almost more of like a systemic stress than a local low back stress. Yeah. I mean
2: if you know me, you know I'm always on the run, up early and home late. So having a three hour morning routine isn't really in the cards for me. What is in the cards is AG1. It's a fast way to get vitamins and minerals I need to perform. I first gave AG1 a try because I wanted a single solution that helps support my entire body by filling in nutrient gaps and simplifying my morning routine. Since drinking AG1 daily, I've always felt strong and energized and ready to attack the day. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre- and probiotics, And more, it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's one scoop, mixed in water, once a day, and every day. I know that AG1 is giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process, so you know that it's safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrition density. AG1 is a supplement that I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. Here is your chance to start every day this season with a gift to yourself. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash provengrit. That's drinkag1.com slash provengrit. Check it out. If you know me, you know I'm always on the run up early, and home late, so having a 3-hour morning routine isn't really in the cards for me. What is in the cards is AG1. It's a fast way to get vitamins and minerals I need to perform. I first gave AG1 a try because I wanted a single solution that helps support my entire body by filling in nutrient gaps and simplifying my morning routine. Since drinking AG1 daily, I've always felt strong and energized and ready to attack the day. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre- and probiotics, and more, it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's one scoop, mixed in water, once a day, and every day. I know that AG1 is giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process, so you know that it's safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrition density. AG1 is a supplement that I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. Here is your chance to start every day this season with a gift to yourself. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D three K two and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com/slash Proven grit. That's drinkag1.com slash proven grit. Check it out.
1: It it is, I would say it's both, right? We all carry our stress in different parts. It's the old tale everybody says, but it seems like a lot of stress can be held in the low back. And there's been a lot of different called like emotional releases or like you're doing muscle work and somebody starts crying, but it's not because it hurts so much like that type of thing that's happened. The only time it's ever happened in my life as a practitioner has been in like digging into QL pain, like in that low back. Yeah. So you, I mean, people do hold stress in the low back and they do hold emotion shit back there. Like I thought it was bullshit until somebody started mm-hmm. crying on my table. And I'm like, am I pushing too hard? Like and sh- they just said, like, I don't know why I'm feeling like this. And I'm like, <laughs> Oh shit, this is real. <laughs> oh my God but no, the low back Hindu witchcraft. Yeah. But the low back in itself, it's, it's the junction between everything, right? If, you're taught we've been taught our whole life to stick our ass out and keep our chest taught high in all of our power positions which if you think about like a wrestling shot the top of that's going to be your power position so you're doing that if you're doing every practice like for three months straight that's two wrestling practices a week you're probably not doing that normally i would say typically yeah. you're, if you're going to miss one session it's going to be wrestling and you're just smashing that low back and overextending your lumbar erectors which a lot of the pain you feel is just, it's muscle strain. It's yeah. the muscles you being used too much. It's causing an issue there. And then boom, side, your nerves got pissed and decide to send a pain signal up to the brain. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about like isometric
0: exercise as a way to correct that or as a way to build a threshold?
1: I love isos. I think it'd be great. I think they should be included in your GPP. They, that should be a part of your ramping cycle, right? So yeah. you typically do like the old school PT route would be, you're going to do all of your isometrics do as much isometrics as you can until it hits the threshold or the the boundary where there's less return on investment. Then you jump into your concentric based exercises and that's going to be less muscular demanding, less neurologically demanding, but it's going to be a step up from an ISO. And then you get into your eccentric loading patterns, which is going to be both the most strain upon the muscle and the most neural demanding. And you just progress all the way through there. What do you think about like,
0: um, so one thing that came up today during our workout is uh, like kind of Cal deeps it Cal deets and is like durational ISOs, even up to like a
1: five minute isometric exercise. Um trying to think how to say that. Not Dickish. <laughs> um I honestly, I don't see many things wrong with it. I just think your time can be better spent other places. Yeah. Like does my, a, does a five minute directional ISO have more of an effect than doing high intensity or hot or med ball work or something like that? Yeah. Cause you got to think about what's our, what are we trying to do with the movement? If we're trying to build isometric isometric thresholding, well then yeah, the five minute thing works, but what sport are you holding a directional ISO for five minutes? Unless you're like going rock climbing.
0: Yeah. Right. And I mean, that's the biggest thing. To say. It's like impractical to me. And it's like, well, if you can convince it's, it's the a person principle. to
1: do it, like, sure. Yeah. It's <laughs> but, the said principle. Like your body is going to have specific adaptations to the demands you impose upon it right? Specific adaptations to impose demands. What is that adaptation going to achieve? Is is that the demand of my sport? Is that the demand of something that I'm doing? Why am I putting that demand upon my body to get that specific adaptation? Could my time be spent better in other ways, trying to achieve different adaptations that's going to make me more successful? Right. And I I think in general, I'm going to extrapolate the said principle a
0: little bit. Like, I think it's super interesting that we adapt both to like we do chronic workload wise, but we also adapt to our acute workload too. Like if you think about it, when we're training, let's say lactic power, right? We're doing that as an adaptation of workout. We're going to maybe spend 15, 20 minutes on it in a workout like period, right? But then you still get an adapt adaptation stimulus from that. The same way that you're talking about like sitting all day, we have an adaptation to that as well, but that's like 12 hours worth. That's chronic, right? So Mm -hmm. I think it's super interesting that We can get a super high intensity um, stimulus. We're going to adapt to that in a short duration versus like a a chronic duration. That's really low intensity. We're going to adapt to that as well. So everything that you do and like, I don't know, every thought that you have, every movement that you perform, whatever, like it does create adaptation. It's just, I think for individuals, we have to figure out where we're going to draw that line of like, okay, now I'm trying to adapt from this or to this. Versus like, all right, this is just going to be how it is, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, and that's, you see that a lot. You're right. Right. But that's the thing you have to explain from a healthcare practitioner standpoint where you're working with a desk worker and they have low back pain. And I'm like, <laughs> Hey, like think about, it's not just workouts that give you adaptations you sitting yeah. in that chair for 22 years. Does, is that the directly correlated thing that's causing your low back pain? I don't know. Probably, probably not just the chair. But is that adds. definitely a contributor to what's going on? Yes. It's causing an adaptation that is not favorable. If you sit in one spot for too long, that's causing an adaptation. That's typically going to lead not to tissue function, but towards tissue dysfunction. So that's the thing you have to tell patients because you're like, you try it, They want to be better in one visit. They want to, my pain should be gone immediately after you adjust them or after you dry needle them. When in reality, like, Hey, how long has this shit been lasting? Like, is this something that's been going on for 20 years? Well, it's going to, it's not going to take 20 years to fix, but it ain't going to be fixed in a day.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Th- and that's funny. You get the flip side of that on strength conditioning too. Cause everybody wants like, oh, after one day or after one week or one month, I'm going to be stronger, fitter, whatever. Uh, but it's like, no, nah, maybe like six months after really good, consistent effort, maybe you'll see a little mm-hmm. bit of change. Right. Or like uh, the other thing that I get is I was training a rugby team and I was like, I was running through some, like, patterning for sprint drills and this and that and like a couple of them like look at me like I guess I'm gonna change how i run after 40 years and it's like <laughs> uh, you know like like maybe you won't but it's worth a try right like yeah. you can definitely be more optimal so um so i think that's funny because like uh, you're not gonna undo everything that like you said your patient's going through but we can change the stimulus you could change how you think about it which is almost the most impactful thing right mm-hmm. it's like how you think about what you're doing and Um, A couple of things based off that too, I think are interesting when we, I think every, every strength coach intern, whoever you are, as you get into movement, as you start to learn about it, I think we all go through this phase of like, all right, I'm going to do everything ergonomically perfect. I'm going to bend over pick up the TV remote from a perfect hinge and use my glutes to pull myself back up. Right. I think everybody goes through that phase. But again, it's thresholds. It's like what can you tolerate for your lifestyle, and uh,
1: right. And in that case, I would argue doing trying to do everything ergonomically correct is actually doing the opposite. It's decreasing your movement variability. It's decreasing your body's av- ability to withstand different loads and different. We'll say less functional biomechanical positions, and right. you can't adapt. It's just another adaptation. If you're not going through the movement pattern, guess what? You're you're probably not as robust. As somebody that is going through that movement pattern. So that's literally on the flip side of what I was talking about with the sitting, the sitting stuff, causing that adaptation. Now it's, Hey, I actually want you to round your back. Just don't do it for prolonged periods of time and don't do it while lifting up somebody else or something like that. Yeah.
0: And I mean, I think Eric Cressy said that too, is like the best posture is the one that always changes. Yep. Right. Like, I think that's a, there's some validity to that is like move vocabulary. And that's something that I've really relaxed on as far as like biomechanical or like, uh, I guess, positional cueing, like, yes, I'm going to make sure that we're staying out of danger and that we're working from an optimal position for sure. But I'm also not going to be anal about grab with your big toe, make sure you're doing this perfectly at that angle like our athletes and especially in MMA or wrestling like they're robust to a lot of different movement patterns and I know you're gonna rebuff me Austin I can already see how annoyed your eyes are when I say I'm not gonna cue everything perfectly but no I
1: was actually gonna talk on that after
0: I think you let athletes be athletes and like you give them direction and you give them the the cues that they need in the moment but I've kind of relaxed from my days of like being like almost like a movement Nazi like every movement has to be perfectly biomechanically correct it's like no there can be some variance and you can get strong through that variance too like that will happen
1: no dude and I I don't disagree with you. I just, I I have an internal struggle a lot. And I think it all comes down to A, the athlete, but B, the goal of what you're trying to do. If I'm looking at an absolute strength type phase where I'm there doing 95 to 100% of their one rep max, stuff like that. Look, there's going to be some sort of movement variability. They're doing heavy ass shit that it's probably going to break through their threshold. So they might round their spine a little bit in a deadlift not a big deal. But if, but if they're doing a functional capacity based exercise, or if we're doing some sort of like sustained conditioning, that's when I'm going to be a little bit more of in my lenses, in my strength coach lens, more of a movement Nazi, because I want their movement or their functional threshold, which we talk about all the time to stay as consistent as possible or to stay as optimal as possible. Yeah, true. And I
0: think during those absolute efforts of those maximal lifts. That's when you get to see kind of where does the chain break and Mm -hmm. where's the weakest link. And I think that can direct your next phase of programming your next, whatever exercise or idea going forward.
1: That's probably one of the best functional screens out there is just put somebody under a absolute threshold load and see what gives. Like not right. in a way that's going to hurt them, but you can see like, Hey, there's a movement fault. That's probably going to be picked out a lot more if they're doing a 95% three rep max of their trap bar deadlift, as opposed to a fucking split squat sc- screen on the FMS. Right. Yeah. I
0: totally, <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. I think there's a, there's a, and safety. it's more realistic to sport. Right. hundred percent. There's a, there's a safety threshold to go through with that, but I totally agree. Um, And I mean, I've said this a million times, but like every movement is an assessment. Every rep is an assessment. Like you get to see how your athletes move when they're under fatigue, when they're performing. Like it's even fun uh, to go wild on it and like watch it, watch athletes movement biomechanically and ergonomically while they're performing in their sport. Right? There's so much happening so quickly and then so much compensation or so much Um, different movement variability that again blows my mind that we think we're smart enough to dissect it down into our clean cut cookie cutter box right there's good positions and there's things we should do but um i tried to step away from the like reductionist standpoint of like split squats only count
1: if they look like this you know yeah. I just, I'm so, I, I realized I said the first part of my internal dilemma, that's the strength and conditioning side. But the other thing is like, I believe that internal cueing and that type of, Hey, it needs to be a little bit more correct. Quote unquote of an exercise is huge when we're trying to make, whether it be postural changes, whether it be some sort of healthcare change and getting rid of pain. So on the healthcare lens, While I do use a lot of external cues, whether I'm teaching like deadlifts and shit like that, I tend to gear my cueing more internal, more kinesthetic, um, say for like a breathing situation or say for if I like I use a lot of DNS stuff and I get great results from it. And that's just so tactile and so internally cued for the most part because you're going to go after quote unquote, corrective exercise. Like you're trying to do it the right way, not just any way.
0: Yeah. I I do think that's important. And I think you can cue it really internally, but I think what's more even important than that is to get to the person to um, internalize it and almost like identify with it. Right. I think that's the, that's the end game, right. And anything that you're doing, if you can get somebody to identify as X, they're going to get better period. Right. You know, like as we were kids, we, we started getting good at wrestling. We spent a lot of time wrestling. So you start to identify as a wrestler mm-hmm. and that's probably why we got to where we're going. Right. If you got somebody to think about breathing, think about moving. And then all of a sudden in their head, I'm a good mover. Right. Mm-hmm. Then they're going to start to think, Oh, I wonder what a good mover does in this back squat. I wonder what a good mover does on a farm. I wonder what a good move. And they're, they're going to start to identify with that and seek that knowledge for themselves rather than, Just try and compartmentalize it and listen to the cue that you're feeding them. Right. So I I think,
1: well, I think it's about educating people on feel. Right. And that's why I do so. Like, that's why I use my DNS stuff. That's why I use more fine tuned cues because a difference in, say, you're doing a modified oblique set, a difference in hip angle of literally like three to five degrees is going to play a world of difference in how you're feeling that in your lateral hip compartment if you're how you're feeling that in that centrated position, functionally centrated position because it's going to be moving versus a little bit out of sync, right? People yeah. feel that difference. So if I can get them to feel really feel that what it should feel like being correct and whether that be using over pressure with my hands and stuff like that or anything else it tends to make them get that exact same response you're talking about where they identify with oh this is what it should be like this feels good they subjectively think it feels good so they identify with this is right and this is what movers do
0: yeah i totally agree with that
1: yeah feed